0: almost everything, says American author Anne Lamott, will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. And that's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm plugging so I can come back just a little bit stronger, because I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Herald of Zion, Part 1, Rav Alkali and Kalisher. Hi folks, it's Rav Mike. Before you get going on this live series... I want to invite you to put your money where your ears are and help make Season 4 happen. You can go right now to my website, www.JewishStory.co and you'll see our button in the upper right-hand corner there. You can click on it, become a patron, and give a little bit of per-podcast support. Or you can contact me at foyer at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at RobMikeFoyer and I'll happily share with you the details of how you can support in other ways. If you want to hear that content, which helps you understand past and present and gives you the inspiration for building the future. Put your money where your ears are right now and help me make season four happen. So as always, I want to thank the Parties Institute, PARDS.org.il for helping to make this class happen. Good morning, everybody. Long time no see. It, it really is wonderful to see a lot of familiar faces, some actually that we haven't had a chance to meet. God willing, someday we'll meet in person. For now, um, the name of the class is the Jewish story, and we've been making our way for the last couple of years in a linear fashion, as much as I am a linear thinker, um, through Jewish history from uh, essentially the return to Zion, the first one, right in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, all the way up to modernity. We got to right around the beginning of the eighteenth, sorry, beginning of the nineteenth century, at the end of last semester, and we hit pause. This Omer series, this five-part series, which I think it's five parts, I'll check that. um, This five-part series is about the foundational thinkers of Zionism. So on one hand, it's a direct outgrowth of the learning that we were doing about the modern era. Um, On the other hand, it's a little bit of a stand-alone. So my hope is those of you who are in the class up to now, that it will sort of enhance and deepen what we've done. And yet, at the same time, those of you who are just doing the class either for this or this is your launch off into the Jewish story, that you won't feel that you're lacking the necessary background. That being said, please don't be shy to ask clarifying questions. I would ask that, that, that um, questions that are, that are sort of a, a curiosity or, or ideas that were sparked by what I'm saying, I will try to pause periodically and invite those questions, just for the sake of being able to learn together. Sometimes it's very convenient if people can wait and ask those questions at those moments of pause. But if I say something that you don't understand or I assume knowledge that you don't have, please stop me or write a chat or, you know, raise your hand because I don't want anyone to get lost. Okay, so our task really, both today and over the course of the next five classes, is to define Zionism. And, you know, it's a deep challenge. Today, if you try to ask people what Zionism means, you'll discover that it has become a catch-all term either for the things you love or the things you hate, depending on which side of the divide you're on, Um, and and therefore has lost much of its meaning. And that's a separate problem I don't want to address right now because, of course, there's a deep question of what Zionism means once the state of Israel actually comes into being, which, if you're familiar with modern Israeli history, to this day, it actually is one of the primary complicating factors in our culture. The idea that there's still a Zionist ideal, a Zionist movement, political and social structures along with the state, right? That's worth thinking about some other time if we get to the present day. Um, But for the period that we're going to look at, what we're going to see is that the Jews, particularly the Ashkenazi Jews, who are really the drivers of the Zionist sort of project, as it were, um, are well known for like sort of the two Jews, three opinions problem. So therefore it should come as no surprise that, that the term Zionism is going to embrace a breathtaking span of modes of thought, culture, etc. Um, and so before we get, and we're, and we're here to really talk about the foundational thinkers, and in many ways the precursors. So um, this sort of uh, interim definition that I want to use when we're in really the pre-political phase, meaning there's no political movement until really the, the very end of the 19th century, there's no political movement with the tag Zionism, where at least you could say a Zionist is someone who supports the Zionist movement, even though you would then have to ask, what's that mean to them? But at least once there's a noun, you follow me? Once there's a noun, I can say, that guy's a Zionist, that guy's not. But we don't have the noun yet. And so therefore, to define the term is a little bit difficult. I'm going to define it as a movement for national reembodiment. And I want to be clear on that. That, that my working definition, and in fact, it's my belief of what Zionism is even this day, is that it is a movement for national re-embodiment. That in many ways, the 2,000 years of exile, which span basically from the destruction of the Second Temple to our day, and we haven't fully re-embodied, so we're still in a very sort of, you might have not noticed, awkward transition phase. Anybody planning on voting for the fourth time come September? <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like, that, that is a symptom that the structures which have brought about our return were incredible and amazing and insufficient to the task at hand. Right? This process is far from over. But, but for now, this movement toward re-embodiment is really a response to the fact that, that all of the collective structures that we associate with peoplehood had gradually, or some of them immediately, dissolved over the last 2,000 years. The temple is gone, there are no national boundaries, there's no language which is shared in the classical nationalist sense of language amongst the Jews of the world. Um, even the religion which unites us, there are questions we're going to ask about whether that's really um, a, a collective embodiment or whether it doesn't have such deep rifts between, you know, the Ashkenaz and Svard and Italia and, and North Africa, etc., that, that you might even see it as a source of division as opposed to union, Right? So so the movement is going to be a movement toward national re-embodiment. And what that means in a deeper level will continue to come up for us. Um, and like I said, we're going to see that there are many streams of thought from its very inception. Remember, two Jews, three opinions. It's not a joke. Um, but there are two impulses that I'm going to trace over the next five classes, um, which I think serve to categorize and clarify what's driving this process. Because that's one of the questions we have to ask in the back of our minds. The Jews at this point have been exiled from their land for 2,000 years, and as Josephus, the great historian of the end of the Second Temple period, teaches, in fact, the dispersion from the land of Israel began well before the Second Temple was destroyed. Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of the economics, because of cultural impulses, what have you, um, you know, for quite some time. So, so we're going to have to understand why now, in the more or less 19th century something shift so I'm gonna give you two of these impulses and then when then I'll speak out a little bit more about them and then my goal for today I didn't give you the big picture my goal for today is to speak about the religious precursors to Zionism because they actually play in many ways um, a lesser role in the long run but for this turning point they play a critical one all right so those two impulses that I really see as underlying all of the streams of Zionist thought um, are the problem-solving impulse And the redemptive or visionary impulse. So, what do I mean? Let's start with the problem solving, because that's the one actually we're not going to talk about so much today. You know, um, from the perspective of Zionism as a modern political movement, the problem to be solved, Then we have a guess, what's the problem Zionism is looking to solve? You can just call out somebody. Well, it's interesting, anti-Semitism becomes one of the primary concerns, but it's not originally... The, the problem they're interested in solving. Although your point is an important one, Shelley. Anybody else? What other problem we spoke a lot about, or if I said it to you, what question are they looking to answer? But even those are already you're proposing solutions. I want to know what the question is. Those people who are in the last semester, yes, thank you very much. If you have to remember this. You must remember this, that Zionism, particularly political Zionism, is formed out of the urge to answer the Jewish question. And today, in the 21st century, there is a little... I mean, listen, uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day is coming up this week, and there's a little bit of discomfort, perhaps, around the fact that, you know, we think of the Nazis as providing the final solution to the Jewish question. But you have to remember that before the Nazis were even an evil dream in the minds of the anti-Semites of Germany, right, that the Jews were trying to solve the Jewish question. And, and, And that question... In that sense, um, we've spoken about as a product of modernity. I just want to remind you what I mean. is that, And, and Shelley, you'll see the parallel to anti-Semitism quite quickly, which is that, that in the medieval era, in European, because remember, Zionism as a political movement begins in Europe and keeps most of its momentum there, although it's more diverse than that. Um, but in the medieval era, the Jews of Europe had a place. One of the benefits, if you want to call it that, of feudal society is everybody had their place. And so long as you stayed in your place, right, then everything would be okay. I mean, unless your place happened to be a starving serf, in which case you'd starve. But, But meaning the structure was dominant. And that was symptomatic of much of medieval culture. The individualism and mobility that we associate with life is a product of modernity, except for a very thin stratum of society, right? And so the place that the Jews had in medieval Europe, was really a product, we've spoken about it many times, of the Augustinian thought, right? One of the great church fathers of of, uh, the Catholic Church from the 4th century, who had this notion of the city of God. And within his sort of uh, theological, political structure, the Jews were the suffering remnant. They were a witness people who theologically needed to survive in order to testify both to the truth of Christian scriptures or truth of the Christian interpretation of Jewish scripture, I should say more accurately, right? 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which they read as a precursor of the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. It's really convenient to have the Jews around to say, yeah, Isaiah was a real person. See, there are the Jews. And as a testimony to what happens to people when they reject salvation. That's the suffering witness side of it. So that may sound awful, but at the same time, it was a place within society theologically and philosophically. And that's why, as we have noted many times, the church, organized church, more often than not, defended the Jews in the medieval era when it came to large-scale destructions of the Crusades, etc. It was the mob and the nobles who would often try to get rid of it. It's not that the church did no evil, don't get me wrong, but the organized structure of the church saw a place for the Jews. That's the th- theological, philosophical place in the Middle Ages. The political place was serfs of the king. Right, The Jews were a middleman between the king and either the nobility or, or the, the sort of like non-noble economic class. And we've spoken at length about how that role had a very two-edged sword nature. But the point is, is the Jews had a clear place as a collective body, the Jews, not this Jew, that Jew. And they were regulated by law, by, church, by canon law, by the church. And also as secular law evolved in Europe, they found their place in secular law. You can find it in the oldest codes of European law, in the, in the Justinian code amongst the Romans, in the, um, the Visigothic code in the, from the Iberian Peninsula, the Jews have a legal defined status. But what happens in modernity is that as all those medieval structures are deemed by Christians to be, well, medieval, right? And they want to get rid of them, want to emancipate their societies, free themselves from the yoke of the church, free themselves even ultimately from the yoke of the nobility and the monarchy, and they develop or, let's say, reawaken the classical Greco-Roman concept of citizenship, and they develop all these things we spoke about last semester, this idea that the state has a duty to citizens, the things that we, having been blessed to be born into a free society, take for granted. As all of these notions came about, we're going to call them, as a lump, emancipation, so suddenly we got a question, which is, what do you do with the Jews? And one of the answers, Shelley, is you hate them. Because <laughs> you know, they don't fit. They don't fit all your notions of enlightenment. They don't fit all your notions of, of, a, of a sort of pseudo-Christian society. They insist on remaining the Jews. that were stubborn people, as Moses himself, actually God himself, said. So the, the Jewish question, in its most simple sense, is... What do you do with the Jews now that we don't have a place for them? And as we spoke about last semester, the sort of two dominant streams of um, sort of a philosophical perspective on this um, were we embodied in Voltaire and in Montesquieu. That Montesquieu was this notion that, that if you emancipate the Jews, they will adapt and become good European Read sort of like deist Christian citizens, right? That basically Jews are welcome into our culture, but they have to check their culture at the door. We call that assimilation. Voltaire, on the other hand, who was no big fan of the Jews, saw the problem as more immutable. He did not believe that just by emancipating Jews that we would change our nature. And therefore, really he felt that we were an alien element that had to be rejected. He never advocated for violence or destruction of the Jews. But... The, the worldview that he crafted ultimately in many ways did. And so I posed to you guys at the end of last semester this idea of the two paths open to the Jews from that perspective were assimilation and elimination. Zionism is a third response. And that's why I forget who said it. But, uh, uh, Matt, the, this idea of finding safety and, uh, in, in our own homeland was a growing realization that the problem-solving, remember we're talking about the problem-solving impulse within Jewry, Right The people who didn't want to assimilate and didn't want to be eliminated were left with you know not much other choice than we got to get out of here, and as we'll see by the way, it wasn't obvious that where the the exit point would be to the land of Israel, but we'll speak about that as we go forward right now I'm just giving the general frame that there is this whole side of um of problem solving, and by the way it is critical to remember that even amongst the Jews that, that, that getting out of town is not the only possible answer to the Jewish question, and it's far from popular for most of the de- first decades of its, of its um, I- existence. In, in many ways, it's, it's the Holocaust and the massive destruction which is wrecked on most of European Jewry, which leaves Zionism as the last viable solution to the Jewish problem. Right, and and that's a discussion that um, we're probably not going to have time to have together. But it's important in light of you know the Holocaust Remembrance Day coming up. Is that is that the other solutions, be they um, reducing Judaism to a religious identity, right? This idea that you could be a German of Mosaic faith and even like a Orthodox Jew. I'm not even talking about the assimilationist element of abandoning sort of the traditional Orthodox Jewry. Right? But that is assimilation in and of itself. If you become a German of Mosaic faith, that's an assimilationist stance, but a way to reduce the culture to religion and thus preserve it within the structure of civil Western society. And and we'll speak more about the fact that that, um, that, uh, classic orthodoxy is an assimilationist movement as much as the accusations that it casts toward the reform movement. It's just the elements of Western society that it assimilates are different. Um so that's one possible, right The other possible is basically complete assimilation to become more German than the Germans, right? You guys know the old joke that the the old joke that the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so right so so you become more German than Germans, and then you don't have to ever leave town. People who are familiar with European history know that this did not end well <laughs> um, but but for now, you have a sense of what I mean when I say that there's At the root of Zionism, one of the primary impulses is a problem-solving impulse. And if you're a forward thinker, you should be aware then that this poses deep questions of what Zionism could possibly mean once you already have a state. If the problem is the Jewish question, what do you do with the Jews in modernity? And the answer is, well, we'll get our own state. And then we don't have a problem of being mixed into European society. Once you get your state... What could Zionism possibly mean? Which is what produces a lot of the cultural crisis within political secular Zionism immediately after the birth of the state. Or at least after the first 10 years of struggle when it finally gained some stability. Alright, that's one side. Questions or comments on that before I give you the other side, and then we'll, we'll keep flowing forward. Questions? Comments? It's a, it's a good question. We haven't actually gotten into time yet. What I'm pointing out is that anything you may know about Zionism... All the substreams, and we will categorize them over the next five, you know, classes. You still need to appreciate that at its root, there are two instincts. There's the problem-solving. What, what causes Zionism to really begin to flourish, or let's say the movement for national re-embodiment to begin to flourish within 19th century? One is the rising Jewish question and the need to solve it. The other one is this visionary redemptive element. So, yeah, I mean, to, we'll see, actually. We'll see to, we will see. We could, and, and I'm going to get to this in a second, the question of where you begin this discussion, but I want to wait on that. But in general, when you speak about Zionism as anything other than a sort of a, a retroactive assertion of, you know, Abraham Avinu was a Zionist because God told him to go to the land of Israel, which people do say quite often within the national religious world as well, in particular, I mean, right? Um, but if you're, if you're going to actually speak about a specific social political movement, you're talking at the earliest of the eight, 19th century. I mean, You can see little sparks, as we'll talk about. Other questions or clarifications? All right, so let's see the other primary impulse. The other primary impulse, right? Um, oh, actually, before I get there, um, it's not entirely true that the problem-solving element is only the Jewish question. Because we could actually say that the problem to be solved is exile itself. Right? And this is probably a little bit more, Matt, what you were reaching toward. That, that, that um, they, they, they simply as... I have a quote here. I'm not going to drag you through the whole thing, but if people are interested, I can send it to you. Um, from the Maharal of Prague. Maharal of Prague dies in 1609, just to give him a, uh, a date. Uh, he's, of course, from... Actually, not from Prague. He's actually from Germany, but he's famous for the, for the life he led in Prague, um, and he says the following, a great sort of mystic thinker and his achievement in the history of Jewish literature is that he was the one who first began to articulate like what were esoteric mystical concepts in a language which was graspable to a non-mystic mind, right? He spoke of what's called, is how you say it in Hebrew, he spoke of the hidden things in a revealed language. So, um, so, the Ma'aral says the following at the beginning of his book, Netzach Yisrael, the Eternal, Eternal One of Israel, which is his book about exile and redemption. He says, exile itself is proof and clear imperative for redemption. Right? It says, the very fact that we're in exile means redemption is going to come. This is because there's no doubt that exile is an alteration and departure from the normal order. And then he says something which must have warmed the hearts of every European romantic nationalist. The Blessed Holy One arranged each nation in the place which is appropriate for it, and so he arranged the people of Israel into the place which is appropriate for them, namely the land of Israel. Exile from their place is a complete alteration and departure from that order. And anything which departs from its natural place is unable to stay in the place which is not natural for it. Rather, they need to return to their natural place. So the Maral, in his own sort of mystic perspective, is pointing out that Exile itself is the cause of of redemption. That essentially, it's uh, it's the historical religious equivalent of what goes up must come down. Right? I throw this pen into the air right now. And I know, beyond sort of the quirks of quantum physics, I know, with a certainty, that it's going to come right back down. Why? Because of gravity. There's a force that makes it natural, so to speak, that the pen be at the lowest place that can come to rest says the maral yeah we're in exile but that itself indicates that we will be redeemed because that is our natural state is in the land of Israel right this is important because if the problem is exile and not the particular socio-political situation of the Jews of Europe in 19th century then zionism is much more of a continuation of the jewish story as a whole and, and this is going to play a profound role in shaping the sort of intellectual and cultural endeavors of the Zionist, foundational th- Zionist thinkers. Because many of them are personally, as we'll see, deeply detached from the continuity, not just of tradition. I'm going to get into the, to the whole uh, polemic around orthodoxy and legitimacy. No, they're detached from the cultural continuity in many places. And, and so therefore, the way they conceptualize the problem... You guys know the old expression, right? To a person whose only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right? So, so this is the flip side, which is that, that for, every, for a person who sees every problem as a nail, he'll only ever reach for the hammer. Right? And, and so if you conceptualize the problem as the particular cultural, socio-political situation of the Jews of 19th century Europe the solution you will produce will be fit to that. Right? And that means that the world which results from it will perhaps be very reflective of the one that you were trying to solve. As opposed to the morales assertion, which is that the problem is exile, well then the solution might look very different. And I want to keep that in mind as we go forward and we see who are the people who actually um, actually propose these solutions. It also, by the way, lends itself to a whole discussion that we won't go into right now, but it's worth just putting on the board, um, which is that um, can you be redeemed outside of the land of Israel? Or can you still be in exile while you're living in the land? That one's a popular one these days. Right? You see how the, 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 it's, it's just, if the problem is exile and redemption, it, it becomes both much more of an expression of the ongoing Jewish story, as opposed to a a, a reaction to immediate socio-political circumstance, and it poses the question of what's redemption to begin with. So these are questions which will come up along the way. That's the problem-solving perspective. Now, now, what do I mean by the redemptive or visionary? Well, you know, redemption is a a very dicey word to try to define. We we, we just had Pesach, and um, I'll tell you, as a guy who thinks a lot about redemption, both in a practical and, I'd say, a less-than-practical sense. Um, nevertheless, when my son asked me over Pesach, you know, Abba, ah, what is geulah?" Like, what is redemption? I found it so difficult to communicate. And it wasn't just because he's 10 and, 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 and my mind works very differently than the average 10-year-old. I just found that it's actually, no matter how much energy and thought you put into it, redemption is just one of those things that you'll know it when you see it. And to spend too much time trying to define it beforehand in many ways, is to limit its capacity to change the world. Right? And, and, and so so we've got to have to be wary of the redemptive impulse here, just as we have to be wary of the problem-solving impulse, because the, really the limitation is the same. Again, if I identify the problem as a nail, I'll only ever reach for the hammer. If I define redemption as... X, whatever X is, well then I'm only ever going to reach for the tools to make X happen and I might be actually missing something much bigger. That being said, that within the identifiable streams of Zionist thought, we're going to see a significant diversity of of what vision, what redemption they are pursuing. First of all, this classical messianic thought, which we're actually going to speak about today. That's going to be um, our focus today. We're going to speak about the religious heralds of Zion, as, as they're called, um, right? So I don't want to define it too much right now, as we'll see, even to, you know, you, you grab five rabbis, and you try them to get them to explain what the Messiah is going to look like. If anybody's ever done that, you realize, good luck, <laughs> right? It's not just different visions. They're often competing visions, right? Um, nevertheless, we have this whole long messianic story, and we'll come to it. And, and maybe the vision that, that, that Zionism is attempting to realize is a new phase of that messianic vision. But then, let's remember that by the time, say, the turn of the 20th century, when Zionism is an actual political movement, the bulk of Europe's Jews no longer identify, well, no bulk, let's say half. Half of Europe's Jews no longer identify themselves as religious in the, in the classic sense. They've adopted a whole new secular mes- messianism. And you know what the most popular secular messianism of European Jewry was at the beginning of the 20th century? Who knows? Somebody's got to say it. Come on, guys. Socialism or communism, I mean, yeah, pick your, pick your subset. Yeah, it really was socialism, in all honesty, because the Bundes movement was the largest social movement amongst the Jews of Eastern European Jewry. What's that? Wait, so we'll, I'll lump together the socialists, the communists, and the anarchists. Right? That, that, that Basically, these are secular messianic ideals. And they will see Zionism as an opportunity to create an ideal human society. Right? that that there's no desire to be saved in the divine classical messianic sense but there's a lot of the same fervor for salvation they just see the tools now to be the sort of um the inevitable processes of history as we'll speak about when we get to Moshe Hess which was a very important early thinker in this story um there's a lot yes this is a this is a later development the idea that one can't the, the definition of exile is the belief that I belong other than where I am. Um, which I didn't bring up because uh, there's, there's only so much we can do together. But as long as you raise it that, um, just be clear that people can understand that. That if I move from one state to another, except if I move from New York to Florida, in which case I'll always call myself a New Yorker, right? Um, the, but if I move from one state to another, I don't see myself as an exile. I see myself as having moved. I now live somewhere else, Right? But if I'm forcibly relocated, then my sense of selfhood, identity, and place is elsewhere. The definition of exile, on many planes, physical, emotional, psychological, perhaps even metaphysical, is that things ought to be otherwise. And and so, leaving aside your point about the fact that most of my students and good chunk of American Jewry no longer sees itself as an exile, and therefore there's a huge shift, what we're going to see is that as the Zionist movement is emerging, in fact we already mentioned, that there's be a good chunk of European Jewry who sees emancipation itself as redemption. Because if the Europeans are willing to just let us live as one amongst them and have the same rights and a decent life, that's redemption. Right? And it all depends, again, on how you define the problem. So thank you for raising that point. But but to, just to make the same order with the redemptive impulse as with the problem-solving, is that you have the classic messianic ideal within the redemptive impulse. We'll speak more about that today. We'll have this secular messianism that will belong to the communist socialist anarchists who see Zionism as a, as a vehicle for building an ideal human society. And they'll have to deal with um, the deep challenge of reconciling the particularism of Zionism, I mean it's the movement for the re-embodiment of the Jewish people, and the universalism of things like communism and socialism, and we'll speak about that tension again in the person of, uh, of Moshe Hess and perhaps others um, as we go forward, but it's a tension you can still see in Israeli society. I don't know if there are any Meretz voters out there, but like Meretz has, has struggled in the last, say, two decades to decide whether it still considers itself a Zionist party because it has begun to sense that the particularism within Zionism has overwhelmed the universalism, which it had always seen to be its truly redemptive element. The merits is a, is a is an outgrowth of um, of this type of secular messianism, right? One of the most idealistic parties in the Knesset. You can love them, you can hate them. That's not the, the issue, right? Um, the but but um, and that tension is tearing the party apart in many ways. It's tearing other parties apart. Um, But this is the second element, sort of the second a messianism. Another one, another redemptive impulse, or call it visionary impulse, that you're going to find at the roots of Zionism, um, will be the notion of the new Jew. This idea that um, that in order to be redeemed, the Jew needs to be truly reborn. Um, and, and basically, you could say that what's needed is to redeem, redeem the Jewish people and not just the Jews. And we'll see that thought in the form of Max Nordau, and maybe we'll talk about Berdachevsky. I don't know. We'll see where, where we get. Um, fascinating and, in my humble opinion, deeply disturbing <laughs> um, elements of Zionism, but the quest for the new Jew is you will have a new understanding of the discourse in Israeli society if you're not familiar. With the discussions around what the new Jew is. If you want to understand the relationship between the secular government cultural infrastructure and the Haredesha world, you need to understand the role that the redemptive visionary impulse that Israel was going to create a new Jew plays to this day. And the sub, I would say, the subconscious discourse, usually. So we'll speak about that, again, Nordau, and maybe even Berdyshevsky. And last, but certainly not least, uh, nationalist idealism. Nationalism was a a visionary movement in the 19th century. And we'll speak about it. The fact that, let's not forget, it was a liberal force. Today, nationalism is a conservative force because the world is made of nation states. But in the 19th century, most of the world was made up of of, uh, multinational empires run by usually families. And therefore, nationalism as movements for sort of... uh, national self-determination of peoples was a liberal force right, and, and therefore it lent itself to a lot of visionary idealistic um, conceptions of the world that people are familiar with Woodrow Wilson and, and um, the whole Paris peace process which of course he didn't get to participate in but um, that, that was a whole vision of, of world peace that uh, we will touch on particularly um, through the thought of, uh, of Jabotinsky, of, of Zev Jabotinsky. So, those are the redemptive elements. Again, just to click them off for you so you can have them in your brain. Classic messianic ideal, which has the easiest argument for continuity with the past. The secular messianism, which is a product of the communist, socialist, anarchist, the isms. But the the issue there is the see Zionism as a vehicle for the creation of an ideal human society. And therefore there's a challenge embedded in how they reconcile the particular and the universal. There is this idea of the new Jew, which is going to have deep Nietzschean roots and also racial theory and, and some of the darker, in my humble opinion, sides of Zionism really find their roots there. Um, and then the nationalist idealism, right, in, in the idea that uh, nation states and national self-determination was an evolutionary leap forward for humanity as a whole, but for each nation and not for the ideal society. Okay, questions, comments, clarifications on this redemptive impulse. Now we have them both. The problem-solving, the redemptive, and what I'm going to do after your questions is we're going to trace the, uh, the religious path here, since it's arguably the oldest one. Uh, yes, Peter, the Muskegud is going is to be the earliest um, sort of literary reference there, although I, I would argue that it's a bit older. But yeah, that's the stuff we're going to look at from Nordau. If people aren't familiar, that's fine, we'll get there. I'm just looking at the comments. Any else? Questions? Don't be shy, guys. I just can't see everyone, so sometimes you have to chime in. You can make a comment. Well, and, and I hope to be able to provide that perspective for a lot of people. And uh, there might be folks out there who don't know, I should just say now, that, that um, in addition to teaching this live class, I have a podcast called The Jewish Story, which if you're interested in seeing the whole arc all the way up through, uh, I mean, I'm about to get to 1967, so, so you can pursue it at your leisure. As they say, if people are, are curious about where to find that, I'm happy to share the information at the end. The reason I wanted to disaggregate them is because what they do, what they are representative of, are different visionary or redemptive elements. It's true. You will have religious socialists. You will have, um, you know, religious nationalists, for sure. You'll even have nationalist socialists, which is an uncomfortable term this week. But, um, but, but you know, if people are familiar with the thought of Bear Borkov, which we'll, we'll touch on, Right? The, the need to reconcile classical Marxism and nationalism in order to let all these Jew, Jewish communists actually come to Israel is actually a very real thing. So yes, absolutely. But each one, I hope you understand, represents a different element of vision. Uh, other comments or questions? People will either write them out, shout them out, we'll keep going. Okay, now, it is great. We're doing perfectly on time. When we speak about religious Zionism today, in my notes I have it here in quotes. Right? And one of the things we want to be wary of um, is is anachronism in language. It's always a problem in life, in teaching even more so, that we use terms because they help us communicate. I say to you religious Zionism, and you can say, okay, there's somehow a union between the religious classical impulse of the Jews, which has developed for 1,500 years in exile, and this new Zionist thing. That sounds nice, except I say religious Zionism. What else does it mean? You know, guys with knitted kippas and, like, People like me, right? look like me, right, live in settlements, they have a political party, right? So we have to be careful with um, the anachronistic tendency of language. When I say religious Zionism, I'm saying as a movement for national self-embodiment, what are the religious roots of that movement? And so I made a joke before about Avram Avinu, about our father Avraham, but it's it's not entirely a joke. I mean, he is the first person to hear this call, lech lecha, go, or go forth, or go to yourself, depending on how you want to read it, and receive a promise that it's only in the land of Israel that he'll become a great nation. Right. So it's it is important to remember that in classical religious thought, that the 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 dwelling in the land isn't just a um, sort of a national mutual aid society that, that, you know, like in the Hobbesian sense that we band together in order to hold off the dangers of life alone. That there's a way in which the land is a vessel for a divine relationship on a national scale. And that lies at the roots of much of... And, and, and I say that also because religious thought isn't just the um, sort of technical... Torah and mitzvot—that there there are mitzvot you have to do in the land. Therefore, living in the land is better than living elsewhere. That's also true, and you will find that that sort of um, sort of a stratum of thinking within religious thought to this very day. But but there is a, that visionary element because you know I mean listen the rabbi one of the the, the rabbi of my neighborhood every year on Parsha Lechicha gives a a sermon in shul on the state of religious Zionism. Um, so so there is something to be said there, but practically speaking. In our discussion of modernity, we saw the first sparks of a religious return to Zion in the Golden Age of Sfat, if you'll recall. i going to touch a few points, and then we'll get up to modernity. Right? You may remember, those of you guys who were in the last uh, semester's class, that we, we saw that dramatic moment that Rabbi Yosef Karo, author of the Shulchan Aruch, right, one of the great minds of Judaism of the uh, 16th century, actually had a magid. He had this sort of angelic voice that would speak to him periodically, and that on the night of Shavuot, um, in the year before he went up to Israel, that the Magi told him, I hope you recall, go up to the land of Israel, for not all times are opportune. There is no hindrance to salvation, be it much or little. Let not your eyes have pity on your worldly goods. You will eat of the goodness of the higher land, if you will but hearken of the goodness of that land. You shall eat. Make haste, go up to the land, for I sustain you here and I'll sustain you there. It goes on. Oh, He says, And go up to the land of Israel, which you would be able to do were you're not trapped in the mud of worldly desires and vanities. So, we saw that a lot of the religious culture and the tremendous creativity flowed out of spot. I'm talking now in the 16th century, right? In particular, the 1570s, where like the... Uh, uh, I don't know the great age of music. It was like it was like the late '60s of music, in, you know, in in America, right? That, that um, can I make that comparison? That's going to come back to haunt me. Anyway, too late. Um, <laughs> the the uh, there was a power, in a sense, that it was only in the land of Israel, that they would be able to shrug off the falsehood of exile. And notice. The chief falsehood that's being spoken of here is relying on flesh and blood. I mean, it's interesting today, I mean, here we all are in the Zoomiverse instead of sitting in the classroom, and I hope you guys are taking the time to think a little bit about the situation we're in and what life's going to look like when we get out of it. But one of the big questions, which is beginning to trickle up, is, is like, is there a way we can restructure our economy coming out of this where a crisis like this doesn't cause 25% of our country to be instantly unemployed? which Which indicates that perhaps a lot of our economy is built around nothing that's essential. Right? Here's this, this piece that says, If you weren't trapped in the mud of worldly desires and vanities, you would come up to the land. I can feed you here just like I can feed you there. That The survival impulse was one of the things preventing the Jews from coming back to the land of Israel. And yet the land of Israel, in classical religious thought, has always been the place in which you're put that to the test. Right? You understand that that, that it's the place in which life isn't going to be easy, but but it's, but it's living financially, now I'm speaking, like the physical aspects of life, itself is an act of fate. Right? And that's not just a modern sort of uh, speech that I give to people who are thinking about making Aliyah, which I do, um, but also is something you can trace all the way back to the biblical roots of like when we say the Shema, the second paragraph of the Shema is if you do what I want, I tell you to do, then the rains will fall and the crops will grow, meaning that, that, that physical sustenance is a reflection of spiritual status. And that impulse lies at the base of all religious thinking. That they, and and it, we'll, we'll see that, I'm going to say it again, that, that physical sustenance is a result of spiritual status and, by the way, you say vice versa, that your spiritual status is not some abstract, meditative practice, but is embodied in action. This is the revolution which is coming. It's not just a matter of of prayers and ritual observance. That real faith is shown through action. Here, that action is physically going up to the land. We're going to see that this will repeat itself. So it's at Svat also that we saw the advent of of the Arizal, of uh, um, Yitzchak Luria Ashkenazi, right, the great mystic who's in spot only from 1570, 1572. But if you guys recall, or if you're, you were in the class, you should know that the revolution, there were many that the, uh, the Arizal brought about, was really empowering individuals through their action to bring redemption. But this idea of, of tikkun. So it's become quite familiar in popular discourse today to speak about um, lifting up the sparks. That life is a quest for finding the little fragments of divine light amongst the shards of broken vessels which are the world in which we live. So beyond the poetry and beyond the theology, which is quite profound out there, the simple sense is that the Arizal is the one who returns one's experience and one's activist stance to its rightful place as a source not only of authority but of redemption. And you could probably hear why that would be a precursor to any large scale movement toward national embodiment. Religious fatalism is always lurking. A person who has a deep faith in God is always going to be posed or faced with the question of why should I ever do anything? If I'm sick, why should I go to a doctor? I mean, if everything comes from God, then God may be sick. right? If I lose my job, why should I go look for another one? Everything comes from God, maybe God doesn't want me to have a job. Judaism is filled with the activist stance, usually through Torah and mitzvot, telling you, yeah, I hear your logic, but feh, that's not how we live our lives. right?" And, and, but nevertheless, one of the challenges of exile is that that momentum will grow larger and larger. And it will particularly, as we'll see, depending on where we get to, um, one of the reasons that, that um, religious Jewry almost en masse, in the 19th and certainly 20th century will reject Zionism is because it's seen as blasphemous. That that the redemptive action belongs to God. And that the action which human beings are meant to do are the action of the mitzvot, and eventually if we do enough of them or we do them right, or however you conceptualize it, then God will take that action. This runs counter to the roots of what was happening in spot. This is an activist messianic crew, so to speak. And, and, and that's going to matter for us as we go forward. So that with that piece in place, right, we saw one of the places where this um, activist stance on bringing redemption exploded in our faces. Where was it? Somebody who was in the class last semester? Where was the biggest explosion, in the, historically speaking, in the face that, where the, our, our teaching people that they themselves could bring redemption? Right. Shabtai right? Tzvi. So we could call it a mystic rebellion right? And, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go through Shabtai Tzvi again, and people want to listen to the classroom last semester, it's all out there on the party's platform, but, um, but for our purposes, that um, Shabtai Tzvi broke a lot of molds. And if you remember, one of the, perhaps his greatest prophet after his death, was a man named Avram Cardozo. Right, He was a converso, his brother was Isaac Cardozo, who was a rationalist philosopher. We spoke about them last semester. If not, it's not critical. But Avram Cardozo went around the world preaching what he saw to be the Torah of Shabbat Tzvi after Shabbat Tzvi was gone. Right? And one of the critical things that he put across to people is that, that the Torah of the Messiah will make the Torah as we know it now irrelevant. That idea has its roots in the classic Midrash. He didn't, um, he didn't make it up himself, but, but it's an idea which has caused a lot of waves. Christianity, not the least of them. right? Um, was, that was the primary claim of uh, the the sort of uh, apostolic Christians that, that yeah, the Torah was necessary for its time, but that their Redeemer had come along and taken it to the next level, right? And and here we have a return of that impulse. And what's in particular, he said, and to achieve this new Torah, I want you to listen to this, to achieve this new Torah, this messianic Torah, the number one thing we need to do is cast off the yoke of exile and everything it involves. The quote I have from him is, negating its religious and institutional forms, it being exile, in order to return to the original fountainhead of Jewish faith. Now the idea that in order to get at Messianic Torah, you have to do what's called Shlilat HaGalut, the negation of exile, that basically that being trapped in exile is more than a physical, socio-political question. Who said that? That was Avram Cur- Cardozo who was uh, a prophet at the um, let's think about it end of the eight, well, end of the 17th century so you know end of the 17, 1600s yeah um, the this idea will stay mildly underground anybody know who the next sort of large scale voice who's going to speak about the need to to end exile in order to achieve a new level of Torah is going to be. Any guesses? See how familiar you are. If people are familiar with what I teach, it's a hint. We're going to get to the Vilnagon. Don't worry. He's up next. Rav Kook will speak about Torah Eretz Yisrael. Yes, yes, yes. He will speak about Torah Eretz Yisrael, this Torah of, of the Land of Israel, which is fundamentally different. So why do I mention it to you? Because I want you to see how it's, it's Davka, the heretical, groundbreaking, Sort of institutional shattering and perhaps sinful, I'm not getting into that right now, but it's the non-normative elements which are the ones which are able to break the mold and allow things to go forward, which is one of the fundamental questions that we have to keep in mind, is that, is that how do you progress in an evolutionary sense as a people right? or how do you get to redemption from a state of exile is it a continuous process? Right? That's what normative religious thought wants to tell you. Just keep praying, keep doing mitzvot, be kosher, you know, keep the laws of Tartam, Mishpacha, etc., and God will take care of the rest. But there's a, the element in the religious world that actually makes things happen is the one that says, no, we need to make some quantum leaps here. And that's going to mean breaking some molds. So this idea of Shlilat galut, the negation of exile, actually works its way into Zionist thought from Sabbateanism. And it will have profound... The idea of negation of exile becomes a dominant... We will see it again and again and again. To the point today where it's less common in Israel because people envy the life in America. But you can still find it within our culture, this sort of sneer at any Jew who doesn't live in the land of Israel. People are fami- familiar with Abi Yeshua, I hope, yes? The great author, poet, Israeli, yeah? Do You guys remember, it was about, I don't know, five, ten years ago, where he spoke in the marriage I think it was the American Jewish Congress like their like centennial celebration, some really big thing, and he basically told them that, that um, Jewish life outside the land of Israel was the equivalent of masturbation as compared to sex. Can you imagine? Yeah, in those terms, by the way. it was like, what? You can Google it. His speech is fantastic. But that is a deep expression of this idea which lies at the root of classical Zionism that what it is to nationally re-embody is to negate exile. And, of course if you then succeed in building the state of Israel, but exile still goes on existing, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have a pretty negative attitude toward exile, which may sound familiar to you, if you're familiar with, uh, you know, like, say, the last 60 years of Israeli history and, and, frankly, the relationship between American and Israeli Jewry even today. We're just tracing the line. Someone here in the, uh, in the chats asked me, where does Avil Nagoon fit in here? And he's almost up. Um, one, one warning I want to give. They, they, one of the greatest... Um, Sabbatean popular movements that, they, that came at the end of the 17th, the beginning of the 18th century, was the movement of, uh, of Rabbi Yehuda Hasid. People have been to the old city, How we've been to the Churva. Right? The Churva, which is no longer destroyed, was originally the, the, the synagogue built by Rabbi Yehuda Hasid. Or begun to be built by him. It's a more complicated story than that. But, but what happened was that in 1700, after um, about four years of travel through Europe and gathering momentum, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 Jews, poor, suffering Ashkenazi Jews, arrived in the land of Israel. And what's fascinating is today, if you went on, let's say, the uh, Jewish Agency website, and you can go to, what they have a Zionist history spot there, I don't remember where it is, but you can search around for it, you will find the Aliyah of Rabbi Yehuda Hasid as one of the original acts of Zionism. Which is fascinating, because you know how it was seen by the Sephardic community, which already existed in Jerusalem, when they arrived? Uh, Viva, you're answering, but you're on mute. They were invaders. They were broke and therefore a burden. And you know what else they were? Sabbatean heretics. <laughs> like, like, this, is, this was bad news. Now, I tell it to you both because there's something slightly amusing about it, but also because you have to be wary of historiography. Right? Historiography, what do I mean? Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual counselor, some of you guys know this, and one of the primary tools that I use in my counseling practice is known as narrative therapy. Now, it's, a, it's a tremendous discipline, I encourage everyone to learn up on it. Uh, um, but the, the, the fund, one of the fundamental tenets of narrative therapy um, is that a narrative is the way we string together the events of life, or history for that matter. And I say the way we string them together because of course there's always other ways to string together events, and they can tell very different stories. Right? In, in the historical discipline, this is known as historiography. Right? How do you tell the story of history? You can't tell everything. I couldn't possibly tell you everything, even if I did the most massive brain dump I could possibly do. I don't know everything. So, you know? so on some level, I have to trace a story through history. And so you want to be very wary of, of what's known as Zionist historiography, because the Zionist movement won in Europe largely because the Nazis killed all their competitors, right? It won, but you should hear that winning because the, there was a fierce competition, you know, between the Bundists and the Zionists and the religious, and there you was know, a fierce competition for the hearts and souls and future of the Jewish people. The Zionists won, and you know what everybody does once they win? They write the history of how actually it was inevitable. They didn't win by chance or by, by hook or by crook or by luck or by... Vi- vicious political and you know, tactics. No, we're the natural product of the entire evolution of the Jewish story. And in order to do that, everybody creates their foundation myth as far back as possible. right? And so therefore, I just want you to know, we want to be very wary. I, and by the way, on some level, yeah, Rabbi Yehuda Hasid is a 500 to 1,000 people um, coming up to the land of Israel as part of a growing consciousness in religious Jewry that the land of Israel is a place to be. Is not untrue, but to call it the first Zionist Aliyah is just a a ridiculous (laughs) co-opting of history and one which I just wanted to, I had my notes, beware historiography. So you've been warned, right? And not only, by the way, you should be warned, but that means that when you're listening to me, you should be asking the same question as I just posed to them, which is what's the story I'm trying to tell as I string together these events. Right, and and I and I actually rely upon you guys to be paying attention to bring your own knowledge and critical minds. I'm trying to do my best to be honest, but I can only be honest insofar as who I am. So that's my postmodern uh, disclaimer. Um, okay, so someone asked about the gra. You guys with me? Thumbs up, thumbs down, questions, comments. All right, I'm seeing the thumbs. Okay, great. So somebody asked about the gra, the Vilna Right, and and I assume um, a, that that Sarah asked about the Vilnogun because. It's fairly well known that, um, that in the late 18th century, so now we're talking about the late 1700s, and the turn of the 19th century, there was a sort of awakening. It began with Rabbi Yehuda Hasid. Also, the students of the Baal Shem Tov, many of them came back to the land of Israel, and the Vilna Gaon told his students that they must... Return to the land of Israel because the time of redemption was nigh. If you're talking about redemption, it's always nigh. It's not. It's never soon, right? Um, they, and and so we see that in the numbers. Just first of all, some some numbers that by the year 1800, of the estimated 300,000 people in what is then Ottoman Palestine, um, there are about 5,000 Jews. And that's a that's a significant increase. It is true that there has always been Jewish residents since the destruction of the Second Temple, but sometimes that was a matter of two or three families. I actually have a, a, a good friend who is a member of the Zenati family, which are the family of, of what's called known as the Pekin Jews, who, whose family never lost its residence in the land of Israel. I can trace it all the way back to the Second Temple, which is pretty incredible. She, of course, was born in Great Britain, because um, <laughs> the family's a big family. Um, so anyway... But these sort of trickles were traditional religious returns. Go to Eretz Israel, go to Zion, and await the Messiah. So it might be that doing mitzvot in the land of Israel, like the Arizal and, and Rabbi Yosef Karo thought, was like more effective, right? That's the sort of Archimedean point of Torah, right? The Torah is the lever, and the land of Israel is the fulcrum, and if you want to move the world, so it's better to put the two of them together, but it was a traditionalist stance, it's, and most of them, therefore, settled in the sort of four holy cities, which is a concept which actually dates more or less from that time, from the 17th, 18th century, right? Of Jerusalem, Sfat, Tiberia, and Hebron. It was in 1808 that our story really begins to change, right? What happens in 1808? Rav Menachem Mendel of, of Shekhlov leads the first group of the students of the Vilna Gaon back to the land of Israel. And over the next two years... Five out of the six chief students of the Vilna Gon actually come to the land of Israel. That's with the exception of Rav Chaim of Volosian, if people are familiar, who's like, you know, there in in in, Voloshen, in, 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 in uh, Lita, building the, the Harvard of, of uh, yeshiva education, right? And he will have a profound impact on European Jewry. But all of the other chief students of the Graal come to the land of Israel in order to embody his particular vision of redemption. And they will say over and over again, you find it in their writings, they'll quote it in the name of the graal of their teacher, that in this hidden redemption, the divine presence cannot arise of its own accord from the dust. Now this is an important turning point. Because it's no longer go to Zion and await the Messiah, you'll have front row seats. And it's no longer even go to the land of Israel and you'll rack up more points on the mitzvah board and therefore God will act faster. Now it's God needs your help to bring redemption about. Right? And it will only happen through the ingathering of exiles and their building of the land. This is a shift in thinking, which again, probably sounds obvious to us because we're living in the 21st century in the modern state of Israel. Or maybe some of you guys aren't in the modern state of Israel right now. I actually don't know where everybody is. But anyway, the the modern state of Israel exists. So the idea that redemption will only come about through the ingathering of exiles and the building of the land. I don't know about you. I don't think redemption has come yet. But I'd like to believe we're on the way. But in the classical religious thought, there was a huge school of thought that said, no, no, no. The Messiah will come and then ingather the exiles and build the land. So this is a shift, right? One which actually leads... Rabbi Huda HaLevi Edel, who's again one of the Graz students, to, to um, say that for the future the redemptive process will be conducted in a natural way without miracles. And that's why at first the Graz disciples will go to Jerusalem they'll, they'll, and they'll spread out trying to buy up any field or vineyard that they can find. Because they will attempt to embody the Graz vision through physical working of the land. They are the first group of religious Jews who have a sense that it's not the socio-political movement, which will come later, which is basically saying, you know, problem-solving doesn't work, life in Europe, we want to move life here, if we're going to move life here, we actually have to just work the land and feed ourselves, nor is it even the new Jew vision that, oh, the Jews in Europe are parasitically sort of like top-heavy into finance and non-labor so we want to bring them to the land of Israel and heal the land and heal ourselves that's that AD Gordon labor vision that we'll speak about this is when i buy a vineyard and work the ground i'm going to bring about redemption it will be the trigger right that's a that's a profound shift in religious life which doesn't last because basically in the year 1840 Right? Tremendous difficulty, famine, and uh, just financial difficulty causes most of the students of the Grah to abandon that path. Um, it's interesting because the year 1840 was a time of huge messianic um, fervor within European Jewry. There's a Zohar that I'm not going to spend the time right now parsing out. But basically it says that the six hundred year of the 6th millennium, which is the year 5,600 in the Hebrew calendar which is also the year 1840, is going to be the year that the gates will open up and that the light of redemption will come into the world. It has to do with the way the Zohar reads the story of Noach. Not critical. I don't know how you feel about the Zohar, but I can tell you how the students of the Grah did. They, they saw it as definitive, right? But what ironically happens is that's the year, more or less, that their efforts break down. However, it's the year of another very important historical event, which is going to, turn, which is going to serve as a turning point for us. That I'll speak about it in a moment, but I, just, again, want to pause... Um, and see people are with me questions, comments, clarifications no, the students of the Graal they, they, well, they went back culturally meaning they fell back on the classic model of, of live in Zion and, and um, live a traditional life and the Messiah will come today, if you're familiar with um, the communities within Jerusalem, the Haredesha communities the Prushim who are central around like, uh, uh, of, of, uh, of Beit Ruchel eh, and um, what's the other Beit Knesset there Super, the good people. And this is Synagogue of the Grah, the Beit Knesset, right? So meaning their descendants are still here, living, they become part of what's known later as the Old Yeshuv, right? The classic religious way of life that the Zionists will enter into a struggle with, as we'll probably pick up bits and pieces of as we go along. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions, comments? Okay, so then we got about uh, 23 minutes left. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to pull it all together here. So 1840, interestingly enough, is also a the year of a a critical turning point event in what I would call global Jewish consciousness and the formation of a global Jewish consciousness. So I'll tell you the story and then we'll talk about why. So on February 5th, 1840, a uh, Capuchin friar and his servant disappeared in the city of Damascus. And now the member of the friar's order spread rumors that the two were murdered by the Jews in order to use their blood in the preparation of Passover matzah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, of course, people with some knowledge of Jewish history associate the blood libel. This is the classic blood libel, right? They associate it with Christian Europe. And this is what's known as the Damascus blood libel. It's, it's propagated by Christians, the Catholic order, but within Damascus, right? Um, now, they seize a Jew off the streets, and, of course, under torture, he names seven perpetrators of the crime who themselves were seized. One of them happened to be a Jew of Austrian citizenship. And here we're starting to get into this idea that, that the Jews have, have been, at this point in Austria, they've been liberated. This is 1840. We didn't talk about it last semester. But Napoleon's come and gone. The model of citizenship is in effect. So this Jew is a Jew, but he's also an Austrian citizen. Right? So, so what happens is that two of the accused die under questioning. This is, is, after all, Damascus in 1840. Uh, of course, that's still happening in Damascus now. Um, one converts to Islam to save himself, and the others confess, you know, after tremendous suffering, one can imagine, and are condemned to death. And now, however, because the friar was a French citizen, you see, we're into a world of international politics, which even 50 years before didn't exist. And the Jews are going to be able to leverage international politics in a way in which few other people can, right? So since the friar himself, the victim, was a French citizen, and one of the accused murderers is an Austrian, this becomes an international affair, and in particular brings a lot of light on the barbaric methods um, which are being used in order to try to extract confessions. Now, the Egyptian government rules Damascus at this point. I don't want to get into the the politics of the region, but, but um, a, a, the sort of media and political storm won't calm down quickly. And the Jews send an international delegation to try to sort things out and save their fellow Jews, to intervene. Um, they eventually actually succeed in freeing the prisoners who are still alive. That delegation includes Moses Montefiore, sort of the great British financier and philanthropist, and Adolphe Cremieux, who's a French statesman. Remember, at this point, the Jews of France have been liberated, emancipated longer than any other country. So Montefiol and Cremieux go together as part of an international delegation. They succeed in um, freeing these prisoners, but the shock to the Jews of the West, who've been enjoying decades of emancipation at this point, doesn't fade so quickly. It wasn't just that it is a blood libel that just popped up in a place that nobody was ever looking for. it. That touches a raw point, the blood libel in the collective memory of the Jews of Western Europe. It's that most of the press of continental Europe, where the Jews are emancipated citizens by and large, took it for granted that it was true. Right? The international press may have condemned the barbarity of the means of ex- extracting confession. None of them questioned the blood libel. And the consequence of these two things, of the success of this international effort, I mean, Cremieux and and Montefiol were able to marshal through through their personal status, through the fact that one of them is actually a French statesman, through their connection to international politicians, they got what they wanted. They saved their fellow Jews. But at the same time, the organs of nominally, of, of democratic culture of Europe, the continental press, Never questions the blood libel, right? Brings together with the experience of a collective experience. Jews all over the world are suddenly focused on saving these seven Jews in, in Damascus, a sense of collective existence, which is critical, right? This will cause it to be, in many ways, a turning point of awakening for a number of people. Just, just to point out that, because we're not going to talk about Montefiore and Cremieux right now, but just to point out that. Um, Alexander Cremu, oh sorry, not Alexander, Adolf Cremu will go on to form what's known as the Alliance Israelite Universale. I'm sure I said that wrong. Peter, okay? Okay? (laughs) Um, um, Which is originally founded for the sake of protecting the rights of Jews worldwide. That's a fantastic notion. In 1860, the idea that Jews worldwide will have an international organization based in France, which is one of the world's strongest nations at the time, to protect them... That's a shift in national consciousness. That's in 1860. You know what else happens in 1860? Moses Montefiore builds Mishkenot um, <clears throat> Sha'ananim, also known as the Windmill Neighborhood. It's right, so one of the first major projects building outside of the walls of the old city. Meaning each of them takes from their experience a different route. One is we have to have international Jewry able to marshal its forces to save Jews all over the world. The other one is we need to build in our homeland. But the the a third person who hasn't been part of the story yet, and we're going to end, I imagine with his story um, is Rav Yudha Alkali, who was deeply impacted by the events of the Damascus love libel. Alkali is born in Sarajevo in 1798 is that when Sarajevo was ruled by the Ottoman Empire, he studies in Jerusalem because you know you can move through the empire quite easily um, and is deeply influenced not only by the classical education there, but also by the Kabbalah, which is still quite dominant in the land of Israel. Um, he becomes, in 1825, the rabbi of the community of Semlin. And we see him popping up for our purposes in 1840, where he begins to teach his students that 1840 was going to begin a hundred year period of the Days of the Messiah. Now, of course, a lot of um, modern religious Zionists make a lot of that. 1840, 100 years later, is 1940, like we're already into uh, the birth pangs of the Messiah, into the Holocaust, et cetera. But this, he begins to teach, and it's not so popular with the other religious authorities, that he's saying that this, there's been this turning point year, 1840, which he points to the Damascus Blood Libel as well as a number of other events in his life. Um, he writes a book Right after the libel called min Yehuda, it's in praise of Montefiore and Cremieux's efforts to rescue the Jews of Damascus, um, and then he so is so moved by this recognition that the Jews need a land of their own as a safe haven, that wherever they are, they'll never be safe unless they can sort of support themselves. That he writes a book, um, whereas with writes a. The no, he begins to travel. He doesn't write actually. Um, doesn't write uh, Raglumavaser. No, he writes. Sorry, I'm sorry. He writes Raglumavaser, the footsteps of the herald, and begins to travel Europe in order to try to convince people. It's basically uh, a detailed plan for national redemption, right? And many of them actually will become central to the the vision of Theodore Herzl, right? He, he, here's a good quote from him. It says Israel's redemption will be brought about by kings on earth. Notice, international politics. For salvation is the Lord's alone, and he will cause it to be realized by human beings, just as he caused salvation from the exile in Babylon to be brought about by Cyrus. Again, there's a, there's a model they're following, that the first return to Zion happened under the aegis of King Cyrus. He's saying it will be the kings of the world who will bring it about. Therefore, the vehicle for redemption is no longer classic go to Zion and pray and do mitzvot. It's create organizations for international political pressure, because this was his experience during the Damascus blood libel. Right? Um, leaders of Israel established an opening like the eye of a needle, and the Holy One, blessed be He, will make that opening as broad as the entrance to a hall, and will incline their hearts to do their best. And so therefore, on the note of that sort of opening, a, establishing an opening as big as an eye, eat, eye of a needle, he began to call for the founding of an association of leading Jews, to enter into diplomatic negotiation with the leaders of the nations of the world and to educate the masses of Jews who he knew weren't going to support him and for creating a colonization society to begin to purchase and settle land in the land of Israel. He traveled Western Europe in 1851 to Um His success was pretty poor amongst the Jews, right, especially amongst the rabbinic class who considered this idea of asking for the Christians to help and human-driven redemption is downright heretical. They're still thinking about Shabtai Tzvi and that disaster. Nevertheless, there were a group of British Christian Zionists who helped him found for a very brief period of time in 1852 the Society of the, of the Settlement of, of uh, Eretz Israel. And his sort of next major work was, was called Goral Hashem, A Lot for the Lord, he published in 1857, which was a whole treatise not only again on the idea of restoring the Jews to their land, but suggesting methods for the betterment of conditions in the land of Israel, to the point where he even suggests forming a joint stock company, like a like the modern like at that point the steamship or railroad trusts, which were making such inroads into the sort of financial structures of uh, of the colonial efforts of the Europeans. Um, he goes so far as trying to, to get the Sultan, uh, uh, the Ottoman Sultan, to see the land of Israel to the Jews as a tributary country. Something, by the way, if you're familiar with um, Herzl's works, many of these ideas show up in the Judenstadt, in the Jewish state. Now, the connection between Herzl and um, Alkali is an interesting connection because Herzl's grandfather was a traditional man. And was quite close with Rabbi Yehuda Alkali. There's no good um, scholarly documentation on any actual relationship between Herzl and Alkali, but what is clear is that you have these ideas which are appearing in the pamphlets of a rabbi. You have to understand, for a rabbi, a kabbalist, to be writing on one hand sort of a like classic midrashic analysis about how um, the individual is empowered to bring about redemption, and to include in the same book a joint stock plan for convincing the sultan, you know, to you know, sort of cede the sovereignty over a portion of his land to the Jews is unprecedented. And the fact that at least the second half of that makes it directly into Herzl's Jewish state begs the question of how much influence al actually had on him. But for our purposes, you can see, oops, I almost fell over there, um, you, you can see how he is the culmination of all these elements of, not just the negation of exile, that we can't last here any longer, not just the, um, sense that the individual now needs to take action to bring about redemption. It's no longer enough. And not just the classic action of Torah and Mitzvot, but action in the, in the physical world. And to add to that, this recognition that international politics, which was also a big part of Herzl's vision, right, political Zionism, in the sense of trying to get the world to cede our land back to us, um, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic sort of uh, amalgamation of all the elements which come before him. There's, there's one last personality I know I'm getting a lot, but actually I would like to get them all out today. And I'll leave a couple of minutes at the end. So one last personality I just want to mention. Because he adds um, a critical element. And that's Rav Svirish Kalisher. Rav Svirish Kalisher is born a few years before Alkali in 1795. He's Prussian. He's from the province of Posen. He's, a, he's actually, unlike Rav Kalasher, he's a, he's a major um, voice in the religious discourse of his day. He's a student of... Uh, uh, Rebbe Akiva Eger, people are familiar with the sort of names of the, of the big religious personalities of the turn of the 18th, 19th century, um, he, he writes a lot of classic work, but at a certain point he writes a letter, a shayla, a, a question, to Rebbe Akiva Eger, his teacher, asking him if it's possible to, re, re, to restart sacrifices on the Temple Mount even before the Temple is built. So Rabbi Eager hands the question off to his son, son-in-law, sorry, the Khatam Sofer. These are personalities that we'll speak about when we pick up again in the fall, in the development of orthodoxy. But the big rabbis of Europe, if you're not familiar with their names. And the Khatam Sofer says, first of all, it's an academic question because the Muslims will never let us do it. But he says, if they did, actually, even if the Mashiach hasn't come back, it's permissible to begin sacrifice once again on the Temple Mount. Now, you may be thinking rabbis ask all kinds of strange questions and they get all kinds of strange answers. But Rav Kalasher had been deeply influenced by the writings of Rav Alkali and all the other streams within Judaism that I mentioned. And he became convinced that it was a Jew's duty to participate in bringing about the redemption and the primary vehicle for it was the renewal of the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And so he wrote a letter to Amshelmeyer Rothschild, who was the eldest son of of the founder of the Rothschild banking dynasty, asking for funding for a project to restore sacrifices on the Temple Mount. I've always wanted to write a similar letter and just send it off to some rich Jew today and see what response I got. But i probably get the same response he got, which was absolutely nothing. He got no response whatsoever, which if you guys ever tried to raise money, you know, you've got to be willing to take that. Um, But his hope didn't die he actually ends up joining together with Rob kolisher and uh, uh, some other jews in yet another iteration of a society for the colonization of israel or sorry palestine again in 1860 he, but he writes a book and this is where i guess we'll end he writes a book which is known as drishat zion and if you again look on these like the websites of the jewish agency or et cetera what are the history of zionism you will see in the literature drishat zion is usually put forward as the Founding text of religious Zionism. Drishat Zion literally means seeking Zion. And there he lays out his vision for what it means to have a partnership in redemption. And in many ways, that vision, which I'll tell you the three pieces momentarily, it really embodies both the problem solving impulse, because don't think that religious Zionism has no problem solving impulse. You can't, like Chuck pointed out, you can't just differentiate. Like there's walls between the religious, the secular, the, the, the communists, the... And that, that life isn't that way, right? But, but you will see that it contains both the problem-solving and the visionary. That it is, on one hand, a product of a deep belief of continuity. That there is one story of the Jewish people, just like the Maharal said, that, 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 that exile begs for redemption. It necessitates it. And that all of that classic continuity, on the other hand, you will see it is, is expressive of what is a, I think, classically modern approach, almost Nietzschean in its radical nature of, of a breaking of history and saying, no, we are able to move forward without any fetters, right? That, that the past does not dictate the future and that we can, through our own will, bring about redemption. And in that ways, I would give you, I'll give you these three points, and I want you to see them in many ways as a, as a culmination of this, of this stream within religious Zionism. And it's important for the ongoing story, because in many ways, religious Zionism will then take a back seat, a very small back seat, to the whole Zionist movement. I mean, it does things here and there. Until when, of course? What's the year that religious Zionism comes out of the little box that it was kept in? Yep. Yeah, and if you want to understand what happened in 1967, I've hopefully now given you a little bit of perspective that will allow you to do so. So, he writes Drish Zion, and the book centers on three theses. One, salvation of the Jews, as promised by the prophets, can come about only in a natural way, through self-help. Notice, he's now asserting only that anything else is a false hope, he says. Number two, that it depends on the immigration of Jews to Israel. That if you want to bring redemption, he says, get up and move. And not vice versa, which was the dominant religious thinking of the day, which is when Mashiach comes, he'll bring us to Israel. He says, no, you bring yourself to Israel, and that'll make Mashiach come. And three, that the offering of sacrifices in Jerusalem is not only permissible, but it's part of the redemptive process. And that's that sort of truly radical shift. On one hand, that's as old as it gets. On the other hand, like who was even thinking that way in his time? And it's a complete breaking of the mold of the world in which he lives. And I think that these three theses, as I said, in many ways kind of um, sum up all the elements that go into the role that these religious thinkers play as the heralds of Zionism. Because, of course, he publishes this in 1862, and that's a good 35 years before the first Zionist Congress. So I'm going to stop. We have five minutes left. Questions, comments, things that people will want to throw out there or have clarified, happy to hear it. You can also write them down in the comments. Or you can uh, just call them out. Wasn't religious Zionist important in stopping the Uganda plan? Um, uh, I mean, the Uganda, that's going to get us too far off course for me to explain it fully. My answer is no, actually. Religious Zionists supported it. Yeah, they supported it in the Congress. During the Damascus blood libel? Yes. And and, and that, we'll we'll see as um, as we get to Leon Pinsker... That the, the assimilationist hope that emancipation held out, that, that, that as long as we checked our culture at the door, that the, the Christian Europeans would accept us as equals, basically broke down in the second half of the in 19th century. And it, it was what forced many people who had been sort of um, activist assimilationists to become activist Zionists. And that is not a small thing. We'll speak about it more with Pinsker but it's what places the assimilationist impulse at the heart of the Zionist movement. But yes, I think it is expressive. What is expressive, of, we'll speak about more with um, Pinsker's theory of geodeophobia. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, although in all fairness to Herzl, his interest in the Jewish people well predates. that. It's true it was a deep influence, but um, I think it's, there's been an injustice done to understanding his character that there's good evidence in his own writing that he was concerned with the Jewish question even before this was a turning point, like you're pointing out. But like people like to frame it as if he were just this assimilated Jew who woke up at the trial. We'll, we'll, perhaps we'll speak about that. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, you know, there's a whole reframing, and, and there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons that Zionist historiography, to go back to my earlier comment, places the Dreyfus trial as a turning point. Um, maybe we'll get to that. We'll see. We'll see whether Herzl. I was actually not planning on talking about Herzl because. I, my assumption is that people know more about Hertzl than perhaps the other thinkers. All right, any last comments before we uh, before we break up? Okay, guys. Well, this is class one, and um, as always, you guys have my email. If you don't have my email, you can get it from Deborah. If you have feedback or questions, things that you would like us like me to address in the coming class, I'm happy to hear them. And um, everybody should uh, just have a great a great week and should be healthy and happy out there. I want to thank a few folks before I sign off. I want to thank the folks that give their hard-earned money for making this show happen, keeping it free and widely available. I want to invite you to join them. Go to www.JewishStory.co. Find that button in the upper right-hand corner and click on through with a little bit of per-podcast support. Put your money where your ears are, people, and help make Season 4 happen. Or send me an email, robmikefoyer at gmail.com, or a personal message on Facebook, and I'll happily share with you the details of how you can support in any other way. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, dot I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.